Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The top story this week as we continue to make our way through the coronavirus pandemic, the country is experiencing a coronavirus surge, and it is everywhere. This past week, the U.S. hit its highest single day of new coronavirus cases since April. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott also announced that due to a rise in coronavirus cases, the state would pause any further phases to reopen. Furthermore, the increase in cases are skewing younger. For more on the rise of coronavirus cases, we'll speak to Sam Baker, healthcare editor at Axios. So we've been doing a map at, at Axios.com every week, every Thursday. We track how many new cases have appeared in each state over the preceding week. This week is definitely the worst. It is the grimmest we've seen over the past eight weeks. We count 26 states with statistically significant increases in cases. Some of those are really huge increases. You mentioned Texas as an incredibly concerning case. Arizona is in a similar boat. Florida is in a similar boat. And California also is not doing very well. Right. And, you know, just to bolster some of that, 77% in Arizona, new cases are up. 75% in Michigan, 70% in Texas, 66% in Florida. And in California, 47%. So these cases are all going up. You know, a lot of people always point to testing you know, oh, we're finding out that there's more cases because we're doing more testing. But that's not necessarily the case. It does seem that more people are just getting it right now. We are doing more testing, and that is identifying more cases. And that's a good thing, unequivocally, that we're finding those cases. But that does not explain increases of this magnitude. You know, if it was just testing, you probably wouldn't see your hospitalizations go up that much, right? Because if you're sick, you need to go to the hospital whether you get a test or not. The percentage of all tests that come back positive is going up which is a sign that not only are you doing more testing, but the outbreak is actually getting worse. As much as it would be great if this increase was only attributable to testing, that's just not the case. Let's talk about who is getting it, because it seems that younger people are starting to get this. Obviously, we know how the virus affects older people and people with a lot of comorbidities get it a lot worse. And early on, these were the case. Older people were getting it more, people in nursing homes. But now it's starting to trend down. People in their 20s, 30s, and 40s are starting to be affected by this. We hope because the virus tends to be more lethal to older people that because younger people are getting it now, maybe a smaller percentage of these people will die. But, you know, the virus can still kill you even if you're young, even if you're healthy. It can still do a whole bunch of lasting damage to various parts of your body, to your immune system, your lungs, even your heart. So, you know, it's still very serious, but hopefully the death rate will be a little bit lower with younger people getting it. So why are more people getting it? A lot of people are pointing to the fact that since we are reopening a number of states and bars and restaurants and stores have started to reopen, a lot of people are pointing to that. Is that mostly why? Yeah, I think it's really hard to ignore that correlation. These cases started going up. Not right away once places started to reopen, but as places reopened a little bit more, as you've seen President Trump sort of put a greater and greater and greater emphasis on the economy and getting back to work. A lot of people have had to go back to work. That sure seems like the culprit. And one of the interesting things, too, is we look at a lot of the numbers. Obviously, the testing helps, but people always point to hospitalizations. 
hospitalizations are going up in a lot of states, which is concerning, and hospital beds are filling up. One of the interesting things that I saw is that still, even though younger people are getting it, they're getting sick enough to be hospitalized, although the good thing is not as sick as other people where they would need intensive care treatment, breathing machines and whatnot, but they are still filling up the hospitals. So Texas is a great example of, of exactly this. When the whole country locks down, right, the fear was so many people are going to get it that it's going to overwhelm the healthcare system. And then we're going to have to choose who lives and who dies. And we don't want that. So we did this national lockdown. We've come out of that now. And hospitals are starting to become overrun in some part of Texas. It's not every hospital. It's not every bed. But some hospitals in some parts of that state are running out of at least ICU beds. The hospitals themselves are starting to reach capacity. This is exactly what we were afraid of at the beginning. And now it's happening. Some big states that we're looking at, obviously, we've been mentioning Texas, Florida, Arizona also, and California in there too. Do you think we're going to start seeing more states take the road that Texas has taken and start rolling back some things or at least limiting? I think actually we saw it in uh, California already. Disneyland was set to reopen middle of July. They scaled that back because they haven't gotten the guidance from the governor yet. Uh, Do you think we're going to start seeing more of this? We'll see more of it from really large employers and public-facing sort of institutions like Disneyland, where, first of all, they don't want all of their staff to get the coronavirus, and they don't want to be associated with being the vector that caused a big outbreak in California or the people traveled from California and took it back home. But there's a real debate, or a lot of skepticism, I should say, among public health officials and experts about how effectively you can sort of put the toothpaste back in the tube once you've said that you're reopening and how much people will really listen to that, especially since people didn't really listen to it the first time. (laughs) Right, exactly. As it is, as soon as things started opening up, everybody went out there because they were so pent up. And yeah, it's going to be really tough to do any type of closure again. So it is concerning that cases are going up and hopefully we can manage it. Sam Baker, healthcare editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Another story you might have heard, vote by mail has been getting a lot of scrutiny lately as President Trump and Attorney General Barr have both said that it will lead to a huge amount of fraud. Both said that foreign countries could print up tens of thousands of counterfeit ballots, despite experts saying that's not true. And despite partisan fears, research says that no party gains an advantage. For more on mail-in voting, we'll speak to Daryl West. He's the director of governance studies at the Brookings Institution. It is hard to engage in mail ballot fraud on a a widespread uh, basis because there are a lot of protections that are uh, built in. I mean, for example, those in the military have been uh, voting by mail for years. There have been almost no problems associated with uh, that. There have been a number of states like Oregon has been using this for a number of elections. Uh, They have not had any uh, problems. There have been uh, studies of this and we just simply haven't found a lot of evidence that there are is a problem in this area. Tell us about what kinds of mail balloting we have, because there's the absentee ballots, which I know a lot of people are familiar with, and then universal vote by mail. What's the difference between those? In the case of absentee balloting, uh, people, if they're going to be traveling or if just somehow they're not able to vote in person, they can request an absentee ballot from their local board of elections. In some states, you have to have a real reason to do it. Other states have what's called no excuse absentee voting. So you just request it and you get it. In the case of universal vote by mail, those are states like Oregon that just basically everybody is uh, voting by mail. And so everybody gets uh, a ballot in the uh, mail. 
mail. But it's not really possible for a foreign country to counterfeit ballots and uh, send them out. Basically, either people have to request them and they get sent directly to your mailbox, or in the case of the states that have universal voting, basically they are mailing out to the registered voters in those states. We'll delve a little deeper into these protections for this, but I just wanted to keep on this line here. There was a recent Gallup poll that said that 64% of Americans support voting by mail, but then that's split along party lines. 83% of Democrats support it, only 40% of Republicans do. As with everything, <laughs> this whole kind of topic now has kind of had this partisan twist to it. But according to some of the research, there really is no party that gains an advantage from mail-in voting. That's correct. There's been extensive analysis, both on the fraud issue, as well as whether mail balloting benefits Republicans or Democrats. And the research basically shows there's not a net partisan gain to either side. And in fact, I mean, there have been recent elections. There's a 2020 California special election for Congress where the Republicans captured that seat and it was a seat that previously had been held by a Democrat. And they did that by getting out the vote and making sure their voters had access to absolutely ballots. Uh, so where one party does well, it's often because they make an effort on the absentee uh, ballot side, but there really is no evidence that one side or the other benefits from this uh, type of approach. What might be the motivation then for the president and the attorney general, Bill Barr, to start on this line to say that there's going to be widespread voter fraud if we go with increased mail-in voting? Trump has been making a lot of erroneous claims about mail balloting, but it seems like he's just trying to delegitimize the whole process and so a lot of voter distrust in the system. As a outsider type of a candidate, what he did in 2016, he thinks that that will help him in 2020. I think also, like right now, the polls move very much in favor of Joe Biden. Now, Trump is worried that he's going to lose, and he wants an excuse if he loses. And if he loses, he will say they stole the election from me. So that may make him feel good. But it's not responsible for a president to be casting doubt on the way the system operates in the absence of evidence to support his claims. Let's talk a little bit more about these anti-fraud protections, because there's really a lot that goes into making these mail-in ballots pretty legitimate. And they'll check your address. They'll check your signature. There's a lot of different things that they're doing to make sure it's actually you that's voting. Some of the critics make it sound like you can just rent a photocopy machine and run off hundreds or thousands of these and distribute them to your friends. That's not how the process works. And anybody who voted through that mechanism, the local election authorities would eliminate their uh, vote because it would just be so obviously a uh, fake. I mean, the way the process operates is the local board of election rents the elections. They have the list of registered voters. If you want an absentee ballot, you have to write to that board of election. They will send the absentee ballot after they've certified that you are a legitimate voter directly to your mail address. So it's sent to you. It's not sent to anyone else. You have to fill it out. You send it back to the board of elections. They can check for signatures if they want. I mean, there's lots of protections that are built in to prevent election fraud. And by and large, in the places that have used this, neither Republicans nor Democrats have been making fraud charges. Trump makes these claims, but there really is not evidence on the ground that this has been a big problem. Vote by mail is gaining in popularity and especially 
obviously we're going through the coronavirus pandemic. People don't want to wait in lines and have to get out there. I mean, it just seems like a smart decision, but we'll have to see what happens when we finally get there in November. Daryl West, Director of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. As we continue to learn more about coronavirus, there's finally a growing consensus on how you catch COVID-19. Getting sick from touching surfaces or quick encounters is less of a worry than close-up, person-to-person interactions for extended periods of time. And it's crucial to understand how the virus is transmitted because it informs governments on the proper ways to reopen economies. We should still be worried about things like concerts and bars. We need to improve ventilation in buildings, and we need to continue to wear those face masks. For more on this, we'll speak to Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. When this pandemic first started, I think we all thought, gee, everything's a risk. I can get it anywhere. Surfaces, just breathing the air around me. Now it really does seem like it is, as you said, close-up, person-to-person interactions. And that can be a lot of things, you know. Um, So crowded events where you have a lot of people. You may have heard the term super spreader event. and. And that happens when there's one infected person in a really confined space, maybe talking loudly, and the air, the, the room is poorly ventilated. So these types of things, you know, there's a famous study now, a famous event, a church choir rehearsal, where 87% of the people who were there actually got infected just from one person being infected. And that scientists believe is because of all the singing. When you sing, you project. So as we start to learn more about this, it it starts to help policymakers figure out, okay, what's okay and what's not okay going forward. Yeah. And just a little bit more on that church example that you were talking about, because it's important. All told, 53 of the 61 attendees at that practice got infected, but it was a two and a half hour practice. The members of the choir changed places four times And as you mentioned, they were tightly packed in their confined space. They were mostly older. So all they were doing was just kind of playing this musical chairs with each other, continuously spreading that in that one confined space. These are the things that we're worried about. And you mentioned how learning this informs governments on how to reopen. That's why things like concerts, going to a bar, even going to the gym can be a really problematic area. Some people ask, Were the lockdowns necessary? Did we have to lock down absolutely everything? And the people I've talked to have said, look, pretty much yes, for two reasons. One, they didn't know where the dangers were, and there was no way to to know it at that point. You know, this virus is only five and a half months old, or it's only been spreading for five and a half months. The second thing is um, you just don't know where the next danger is going to come when you've got so many people, for example, in New York City, who were infected. But now, you know, now while you've got outbreaks all over the country, and it's certainly a huge concern, it's a little less, little less intense. So this will be a help going forward, um, figuring out, you know, what stores should do to reopen or what, you know, but not bars, for example. Tell me a little bit about the attack rate with which this spreads. And then there's this kind of 1080 rule where the it's an estimated that 10% of people with COVID-19 are responsible for about 80% of transmissions. So there is this thing called the attack rate, which is the percentage of people who were infected at a given place or time, for example, at this 
this church choir rehearsal, um, which we should say took place in March when people knew very little about this virus. So it wasn't, you know, people didn't understand their risk when they were coming to this thing. So at that, 87% of the attendees were infected. So, so the attack rate um, can be very high in these, in these crowded types of events. Also in homes, particularly where you have multi-generation, multiple generations living, many people in a small home or just other places where people, people come together um, in, you know, have extended exposure to each other in tight quarters or a place that's just poorly ventilated. So you don't have the air circulating and the, the virus able to disperse. So this, this idea that 10% of the people are responsible for about, for about 80% of transmissions, that's from a recent study and what it's describing are these so-called super spreader events where you have, um, you know, one person at a conference. For example, there was a conference in Boston in March. Um, this church choir would be another. Certainly the cruise ships um, several months ago. These, these were also super spreader events. You just have several factors to come together, both environmental and there may be something about that, that infected person. They speak loudly or where they're standing or whatever. Um, and, and so then you end up getting a lot of people infected at once. The opposite of that is that that means that a lot of people aren't actually infecting anybody else. If you have a small number of people infecting, you know, 10% of people infecting 80%, 10% of the infected people infecting 80% more, that means you've got a large number of people who are not infecting either anybody or a very small number of people. That definitely makes the case for wearing face masks. If you were uh, talking yes. loudly and, and, you know, spouting out those viral particles, you know, face mask, it's not going to uh, stop everything. It is going to help a lot. And, and you think about transitioning back into the workplace. I, I mean, this leads me to believe that, you know, there'll be no more conference rooms. Uh, you know, why would you put a lot of people in a small space sitting next to each other? And, you know, what do you have? You have a speaker, you have people taking turns talking like that. We've proved that we can do without those now with uh, virtual meetings and whatnot. So that seems like that could be something that goes by the wayside as well. You know, the idea of holding a large event indoors is really difficult to justify right now because you never know if somebody's infected. And, you know, it's important for everybody to remember that if you're infected, you can start spreading the virus to other people two days before you show any symptoms yourself. So, we actually don't know who's infected in a group of people, either nobody or, or people who aren't, aren't sick yet. So there's a strong argument for masks and for everybody to wear a mask because you don't know if you're infected and you don't know who around you is infected. And so if you both wear it, it's, it's a way to protect everybody and just keep the air clean. <laughs> you know, this, this, basically this disease spreads through, um, it's in kind of a gross term, but respiratory droplets. The virus comes out with spit and there's either little tiny pieces of spit that hang in the air a while and then there's large pieces that kind of fall to a surface right away. And um, the idea when you get in these confined spaces, particularly those that aren't well ventilated, that's another thing. Building codes are probably going to have to change, right? Um, when you get, you, you get this sort of buildup uh, virus, and that's, that's one way you get a lot of people infected. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.